following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. You turn in your copy of God's Word to Ezekiel. We're in the 19th chapter. Ezekiel in the 19th chapter. Thank you for following along as I read. Make sure that I don't make any reading mistakes here, okay, which may happen. Moreover, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What is your mother, a lioness? She lay down among the lions. Among the young lions, she nourished her cubs. Get that picture of a lion, Judah. Yeah, there's a highly symbolic language here or metaphorical language, but you'll see, I think, I hope we can see how it connects to Israel and what's going on. It says in verse 3, She brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion. He learned to catch prey, and he devoured men. The nations also heard of him. He was trapped in their pit, and they brought him with chains to the land of Egypt, one of the recent kings of the nation of Israel. And then it says, When she saw that, she waited that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. So here the young lion is a figure of a king. So Judah, her offspring, this line of kings, one of them is taken to, uh, to Egypt. The next one is put in. Uh, Jehoiak- Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. Don't hold me to that. I get them always mixed up. But you can go back and look in the Kings and Chronicles and see this. He roved among the lions, and he became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men. He knew their desolate places and laid waste their cities. The land with its fullness was desolated by the noise of his roaring. Then the nations set against him from the provinces on every side and spread their net over him. He was trapped in their pit. They put him in a cage with chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. There it is. They brought him in nets that his voice should no longer be heard on the mountains of Israel change of, of, of picture now. Your mother was like a vine in your bloodline, planted by the waters, fruitful and full of branches because of many waters. She had strong branches for scepters of rulers. She towered in stature above the thick branches and was seen in her height amid the dense, dense foliage. But she was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground and the east wind dried her fruit. Her strong branches were broken and withered The fire consumed them, and now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. Fire has come out from a rod of her branches and devoured her fruit so that she has no strong branch, a scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. Now, you uh, maybe uh, could see in the historical books of Israel that there was indeed a great conflagration and Jerusalem was destroyed and God is here laying the blame not at the feet of the Babylonians. He's saying the blame belongs with those kings of Israel up to Zedekiah when they disregarded God's prophets and did not listen to his commands and advice to them. So the blame squarely laid in their Uh, court, not on the king of Babylon. God was using the king of Babylon as his instrument, wasn't he, to judge his people. And of course, that troubled uh, the people of Israel. You know, how can you use an evil and wicked person like Nebuchadnezzar 
to judge us? You know, how can you use the Chaldeans to judge us, a people more wicked than we are? Yet, um, God does that, and they would get their turn. They'd get their day in the sun, so to speak, and so that would be the case. That's Ezekiel. Let's turn our Bibles into Philippians chapter 1, and we'll begin our message in the Scriptures. Oh, we want to welcome you, Grace, back to the assembly here. It's good to see you this morning. And a little one. Yes, <laughs> very good. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 this morning is where our attention will be drawn. And I've uh, replicated the text in the notes there for you, as well as uh, an alternative version that we'll just look at momentarily. But let me have a brief prayer, and then we'll dig into our text. This morning, Father, I pray that you would help us to be edified as we look into the Word of God, that we would be strengthened, that we would be uh, encouraged uh, uh, to do your will through the preaching of this text, and perhaps by some means, if there's someone listening here who does not truly know the Lord, they will somehow come to know Christ in this text and the surrounding areas of of the Bible and the things that I mention here or the things that you bring to their mind from what they've read before, that they might be saved. Thank you, God, for this time that we can spend in the Word together in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 1, starting in verse number 12. Paul has finished his introduction. He's reported his prayer in verses 9 through 11, the second part of his prayer, really, in verses 9 through 11. And then he says this, But I want you to know, brothers, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Now, there's an interesting thing about the preservation of the biblical text here that I want you to be aware of. I read the New King James text. If you were looking at another version, say the ESV, NIV, New American Standard, did you notice something? Verses 16 and 17 are swapped, okay? So in the NIV, it says... First, the latter do so out of love, and then it talks about the former out of selfish ambition. But in the New King James, it starts not latter former, but former latter. Okay, So just be aware of that, that swap of verses. There's no difference in meaning in the text whatsoever, and so this should not be an issue that bothers us. It's just that when I read, I was studying this a couple of weeks ago, and I said, wait a minute, I just read that. And it's now this different order. What's going on here? So it's just a matter of the Greek text uh, where there was a swapping of the verses, and that has been passed down to us in a number of different of those manuscripts. It's not a, not a big deal. But it is kind of an interesting one. You don't often see two verses where you just kind of draw a line and, with an arrow on each end to, to indicate that they're swapped. 
So this, the point of this text is the advancement of the gospel. The gospel of Christ spreads despite persecution and obstacles that may be thrown in its way. And I'm reminded, and I put in the, in the notes here somewhere, the verse that tells us in Second uh, Timothy, I think it is either 1.9 or 2.9. It's, uh, well, we'll find it in here, but it says the word of God is not chained. The word of God is not bound. You can try to destroy it. You can try to mute it. You can try to get rid of it. Uh, good luck. Don't hold your breath. It's not going to work, okay? Um, yeah, poor Voltaire. Not poor Voltaire. His house is used as a printing press for Bibles after. You know, and he said God, God was dead and the Bible would be gone, and, and uh, it's actually the reverse. He's gone and the Bible goes on as it will. And, uh, and God's people, of course, have something to do with that, don't we? We propagate the word, we share the word, we copy, translate the word, we make Bible apps with the word, we you know, print it and, and send it to people, give it away and all of that. But really the point is the message of the gospel cannot be stopped, whether the print version in any language is lost or whatever. The gospel will advance. Amen. On the surface, for the Apostle Paul, if you're familiar with where we've been in Philippians and also in the book of Acts... The situation seems very unfavorable to the advancement of Paul's work. Now, we said in Acts 16, the work began with him being thrown in prison in Philippi, and he's now writing to the same church, and he's in a different prison. You know, this guy you know, lands in the local prison whenever he gets a chance, it seems. Uh, he gets in trouble with the authorities, and that's because the authorities hated him. The people around hated him and caused all kinds of trouble. And so Paul was at the time of writing in a Roman prison awaiting trial for a ridiculously trumped-up series of charges that he was creating chaos in the temple by illegally bringing a Gentile in there. And uh, the, the mob almost beat him to death. He was rescued by Roman guards. You can read all this in Acts 21 through 28. So the last quarter of the book of Acts, you read that. It's a nice... A nice narrative, an easy read, uh, maybe this afternoon or sometime if you haven't read it in a while. Um, he was nearly beaten even by the guards who claimed to have rescued him from the, from the mob. He was held in confinement in Jerusalem and then Caesarea for a couple of years, finally sent on to Rome on a boat which nearly sank. Uh, and they finally made it up to Rome. And along the way, he suffered the indignity of a number of unjust courtroom trials and now he was awaiting final adjudication of his case by the Caesar. He was at the, as it were, the Supreme Court. Of course, in that day, there was no separation of powers. So the Supreme Court was the legislature, was the executive, all in one person. And one, well, of course, they had the Senate and all of that, but that's another matter. Despite the situation, as Paul waited uh, for his trials to occur, he was mostly free to minister to people who would come and visit in his house arrest uh, situation. And you see that in the end of Acts 28, uh, 17 to 31. So he was free to have people come and go because, I think, the authorities knew he was no threat. This was not a mass murderer that was in solitary. This was a guy that was as innocent and harmless as they come. All he was doing was talking a bunch of, to them, religious mumbo-jumbo. They didn't care. It didn't bother them. He did nothing illegal or deserving of death. That was declared in Caesarea. Uh, you know, 
two years earlier before he got to, to, uh, to Rome. And he was in Rome there for a while, Acts says, in his own hired house for a couple of years of preaching and ministering the Word of God and the Kingdom of God. Perhaps later on he was in a more primitive set of uh, uh, situation, if you will, of confinement. Um, and we know that there was fruit born out of his ministry. Can you tell me the name of a person who got saved under Paul's ministry while Paul was in prison? You can. His name is in the book of Philemon. His name is Onesimus. Onesimus, Paul said, I begot while in my chains. Somehow Onesimus escaped from Philemon's hold and landed up in Rome and met the Apostle Paul, heard him preaching the gospel, and got saved. And so Paul sends him back. That's the whole occasion for the book of Philemon. So we know that Paul was bearing fruit even in prison. So the gospel advanced despite its primary Gentile advocate, Paul, being imprisoned. Now the gospel started out that same way under duress in Philippi. The church there began. Within days of of it, Paul and Silas are beaten with many stripes, thrown into prison. You remember that in Acts chapter 16? But the jail experience led to the salvation of a corrections officer in that town and his whole family. You think of that? I'm just thinking of the various circumstances in which you, you are. And as I thought about this message, and I'm thinking about our sister Evelyn, uh, Brother Mike, uh, various situations that you find yourself in that are maybe unpleasant. How is it that the gospel can advance despite of or perhaps because of those circumstances? You may be in the hospital for a while, but you may be able to save, see somebody saved because you share the gospel with them. So don't think that God doesn't, you know, God, why do you have me here? Like, didn't you know that this wasn't the right idea? Maybe it was exactly the right idea that God appointed you to be there. So they were there in prison, uh, but in the end, this led to the humiliation of the authorities as they had to go in and release Paul and Silas themselves. Remember, they realized, uh-oh, we beat some guys that were Roman citizens, and that is illegal, and Paul and Silas could bring us up on charges, and we could be beaten for that. Oops. So they had to eat crow and allow Paul and Silas out. The believers to whom Paul was writing, therefore, knew about very difficult problems that attended the church. Their first missionary was thrown in jail within days of him planting that church there and the first salvations in that town. He had certainly informed them in Philippi 2 of his trials and uh, because that was Acts 16, remember, we looked at. He had already experienced Acts 14's events. He was stoned. He was thrown out of cities, left for dead, treated very, very poorly. He would go on to face problems after starting Philippi by going to Thessalonica. They didn't want him there after a while. Athens, they thought he was a fool. Acts 19, he would have been killed in the mob in Ephesus if they hadn't held him back, probably. So we can see that the gospel often progresses and even flourishes when it's under pressure. The apostle cites two ways that the gospel advanced in his particular circumstances. Number one was 
what I call inside, inside the prison, inside the, the uh, judicial system, if you will. He says in verse, uh, he says the fact of the advancement of the gospel in verse 12, but then he says in 13, it's become evident to the whole praetoria. It's a question about the meaning of this word, but it seems pretty obvious to me. The gospel is not made known to a place. The gospel is made known to people. So this must be referring to, as our translation has it here, the palace guard, and to all the rest of the people there that my chains are in Christ. They knew that Paul was not a criminal, and in fact that he was there merely for his profession of and preaching of Christ. It's kind of like, some events may happen today and you have the, you know, you have the 10% of people who are kind of in power at the moment and, and they're all exercised about something and a, and, and a whole bunch of people kind of the hoi polloi down here just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know what they're doing is just dumb and it uh, doesn't make any sense. And that's what's happening here. The, the guards are like, why are we even having to bother guard this, to guard this guy? I mean, he's not even going to run away. We could just leave and just tell him to stay here and he would stay. You know, uh, what's the big deal? Uh, he's merely here for his profession and preaching of Christ. Uh, they could see right through the, the Jews who were envious, who started Paul's trouble and the false charges. And, the, and, and who wouldn't be able to see the fecklessness of the Roman leaders who continued to leave him into, in, in jail in Caesarea and wouldn't let him out, even though there was no charges against him worthy of death. I mean, they said there's no charges worthy of death, but yet we have to send him to Caesar. Guys, don't you have any leadership ability at all? If there's no charges, let him go. Don't be such babies. Don't be so weak. So they could see through all of that. You know, don't be so hip- hypocritical, inconsistent, doing stupid stuff. Some of them must have shaken their heads in wonder at why the system did this to a man. Many probably didn't believe the gospel, but they had enough brains to see that Paul wasn't worth taking up time and space in their judicial system. I mean, they probably had real criminals to concern themselves with. You think? Kind of like today, we have a lot of real criminals to consider, to deal with, and not worried about, you know, people holding church services or something like that. Paul was a decent man. He was suffering for doing good and not for doing Evil, 1 Peter 3.17 tells us it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil, but it's not, a, it's not just to be suffering for doing good, is it? We know that's the case, but in this world we've not been promised justice in every case, although we would certainly like it. So the whole situation led people in that guard uh, cadre to become saved and to hear the gospel. And look at Philippians 4, verse 22. It says, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. In the very household of Caesar, people were born again by the gospel of Christ. And this is how the gospel was advancing, despite Paul being in prison. In fact, because he was there, people who were there and would never have heard it otherwise, heard the truth of Christ. And I'm sure that those saints in Caesar's household, were so appreciative of the Philippian believers, being bold enough to stand up and say, we're going to send financial support to this man who is a beloved minister of ours. 
uh, to help him in his need. And then, secondly, the, the, the second way that the gospel was advanced was not only inside, but I make a brief note here about how it was advanced outside. Outside. There are many more people outside than inside. And he says in Philippians 1, verse um, 14, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains. There's something about, you can stop and think about this, something about people being persecuted for their faith, which raises in the true believer a new boldness to say, if they can take that, I'm going to preach Christ. I am not going to give in simply because of what they're doing to him. Many Christians were emboldened by Paul's imprisonment and began to speak God's word without fear. Maybe they were initially fearful, but then they saw Paul standing up for the gospel before the Caesar. Here's the case before the Supreme Court, and it looks like we could win. And the Apostle Paul is trusting that by the prayers of the Philippians, and he tells uh, Philemon, when he's talking about Onesimus, he says, you know, I trust that I'm, by your prayers I'm going to be brought to you. So he's, he's thinking, it looks like I'm going to be released. I'm going to win this case. Now, later on, I think he went back, and, of course, that's when he was killed under the whole business with Nero and all of that. But he was standing up for the gospel, and this helped other people to stand up for the gospel. We've seen that in these days, haven't we? People boldly standing up for Christ. We ought to stand up for him and his ministry. Today's very similar. Where there's pressure from the unbelieving world, the gospel still advances. And how does it advance? By divine providence, indeed, but by that same providence as it moves God's people to preach boldly. It doesn't just move like mystically or apart from means. It, mean, it, it moves, it advances by the means of people, well-motivated people who preach boldly, and I hope we are such people. We find a new focus to preach the gospel to the people who are lost and dying, and perhaps because the circumstances are so dire, they're dying sooner than they otherwise would. 777,000-plus of our fellow citizens have died in this recent pestilence. And that's only in the United States of America, not counting across the globe. Millions of souls have been ushered into eternity because they can't breathe, basically. In difficult times, boldness is called for to preach the gospel to those that are lost. When there are no pressure and times are good, Christians become spiritually out of shape, weak, more difficult times do require us to focus on issues of daily sustenance. You know, we have to, it's more difficult, it's more costly or whatever, but they should also sharpen our focus on what is truly important. I'll just make a note here too, like the people around the Apostle Paul found, Christians are no danger to anybody. I just marvel at, the, say, the communist governments of the world that think that Christians are some kind of deadly you know, thing in their midst. And I kind of know why, because they don't like the idea of, you know, freedom in Christ and, and the implications of that that have resulted in, you know, democratic and republic governments throughout the world. They think that's a threat, but 
personally, Christians are no threat. They're not a danger to anyone. All we do is preach a message of salvation that you're free to receive or reject. Notwithstanding all that dumb stuff done in history where you had Christian states that would burn people at the stake if they didn't believe the way they wanted them to believe. That wasn't Christian. That was wickedness. But we preach a message that you're free to receive or to reject. Of course, we can and should be quite insistent, shouldn't we? Not just pushovers, demanding in a way that you repent and believe the gospel. But in the end, you have to choose, not us. We can't force you to do that. The threat of the sword cannot do that or anything else. The only pressure that should be upon the unbeliever's heart is not some twisting of the arm or or manipulation by the preacher. The pressure that should be on the unbeliever is the knowledge of eternal divine judgment. Now, that's not if that's not enough pressure to get somebody to believe, I don't know what is. You ought to be able to understand your need for for the gospel if you understand you're going to stand before God and be judged someday. I wonder if you can think about how we can be tools in the hands of God to continue the advance of the gospel today. I have puzzled over this. From basic Bible illiteracy in our community, I'm just speaking to one of the teachers at one of the schools, and they're reading a book, a very well-known book that is often read in later middle school and high school that has allusions to biblical themes It's not a biblical book at all by any stretch of the imagination, but it has allusions to biblical themes like the Garden of Eden. The kids have no clue what that is. Biblical illiteracy is shocking today. And if we could just make it our mission to eliminate biblical illiteracy, that would be good. It would do the kids a lot of good to read the Bible in the schools, wouldn't it? Yeah. That would probably be a very good thing. But from Bible illiteracy to the clamor for social justice and the isolating effects and fear-mongering of the pandemic to the reduction of door-to-door ministry and the hardness of family members that we encounter to the inoculating effects of evolution and science and atheism and education, all those things that tend to inoculate people to Christianity, teach them and tell them it's foolishness and all of that. But, but even so, these things cannot stop the gospel of Christ. But we need to be involved in wisely promoting the gospel, wisely preaching the gospel. Like the king of the beasts, however, it doesn't need help ultimately from us because you don't have to help a lion to defend itself or to advance its mission. 2 Timothy 2.9, the word of God is not bound. Now, the second segment of the message has to do with the motivations of preaching Christ that Paul encountered in this situation. He had enough kind of interaction with those things going on outside that he could see this. He says in 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some from goodwill. So there are the two motivations for preaching the gospel. Some of those emboldened ministers were preaching Uh, out of a good motivation and others out of a bad motivation. Let me mention, though, that the Apostle Paul here is not commending false doctrine. 
He is not promoting those who promote false doctrine. So, for example, he was not saying that the Judaizers who are out there are preaching, and that's wonderful, I'm glad they're doing that. They were not preaching the correct gospel, and so he would condemn them. In fact, look in Philippians 3.2. It says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Okay, he's, he's not talking about the red, black, and white sign that says, Beware of dog, you know, on the fence leading into someone's home. These are religious statements. People who are of the circumcision party who think you have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved or to be sanctified, false. That's not the case. So he's not commending false teachers here. He would not show favor today to those who are preaching a false gospel. Every religion in the world is preaching that you get to God by doing good works, basically. He would not commend them. They're not preaching Christ, so he would not rejoice over their works. So there's something else going on here that is uh, an interesting situation. You have people who are preaching true words, but they're doing so out of a bad heart. Look at verse uh, 16. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, or 17, depending on your translation, uh, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. So it tells us they were motivated by what? Jealousy or envy and rivalry or strife. Now, when you read envy and strife, it might not make as much sense to you, but I think when you translate it, I think it's better translated jealousy and rivalry. It seems to be able to make some sense that they wanted to be prominent like the Apostle Paul. They are motivated, the Bible says, by selfish ambition. They are not sincere, or that means not pure. And they were supposing to add affliction to my chains. My friends, there's no way to preach Christ. That is so odd that they would think that that's okay. They were not sincere in preaching Christ, which means they did not have holy or pure motivations. They had some proud desire. They wanted to preach for money or fame or influence. Maybe I'm just thinking of some, maybe some of you are wondering, what, 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 what is this? What I'm saying is there are some preachers who may preach true words, but they are not doing so for true motives, motivations, pure motivations. They are doing so for money or for power and influence or for recognition. They want to be the big cheese and... That's why they're doing what they're doing. And that's what's happening here. Not sincere, not pure, they're prideful. They want this money or fame or influence, not for the love of Christ nor for the love of the lost were they preaching, but they did happen to be preaching true doctrine, even though they had a heavy dose of malice toward Paul at the same time. And they wanted to add affliction to his chains. Now, why would you want to do that? And how would you do that, by the way? Somehow they figured that what they were doing would cause the Apostle Paul further trouble and distress him. Let's imagine a way that that could be the case. We can't say for sure because it's a bit murky. And as I tell people sometimes when they say, you know, like, why, is, why are they doing that? I'm like, look, it's like trying to find a good thing in a garbage can. 
you're trying to explain the motivations of irrational, sinful people, it's going to escape you. You can't be sure because it's, they're not right. There's something amiss. So try, trying to find logic in it, there, there may be some sick logic there. But So their, their motives are a bit murky, and maybe we, you know, we have to be careful certainly not to speculate too much. But, and, and if you don't you know, kind of give yourself over to evil plotting in your mind, maybe it's hard to figure out what they want to accomplish. And, and, and good, because you should, be, you should be simple concerning evil, right? The scripture says, wise concerning good. But maybe they, they, uh, the distress that they hope to inflict on Paul would be that you know, they want to become more famous and have a larger following than him. And the fact that Paul was set aside, maybe they figured that that would chafe Paul, that that would just, that would just grind him because he had no opportunity now, but they had an opportunity to enlarge their ministry. Instead of focusing on the ministry of Christ, per se, they were trying to enlarge their own following. And so the distress they thought Paul would feel would be that he's losing supporters or losing political clout, and he would resent those preachers. And and since he was in prison, he would champ at the bit even more to get out. But see, they were misanalyzing his entire motivation. Paul didn't think like that at all. That's not how Paul looked at things. So none of this bothered him. He knew that God was at work in his imprisonment. And if that was good enough for God, it was good enough for Paul. Right? He didn't look at things from this this, uh, envy and rivalry and gain myself more following and all that. He's not preaching himself, but Christ Jesus the Lord. That's who he's preaching. And so it is for us, my friends. You preach and preach and preach and then, and then and share the gospel with somebody and then somebody comes along in five minutes and shares the gospel one more time and that person you've been working on for years is saved. And another man has planted the other waters, but God gives the increase, doesn't he? And as Jesus said in John chapter 4, you know, you're entering into other men's labors the prophets who came before you and all the work that was done before. And you can rejoice in that, but you know, he that harvests and he that plants can rejoice together because Christ's work is being done. So you don't look at it from a, you know, that church is bigger than our church. Boy, he has a better ministry than I have. Well, I'd like to move up the scale and have a bigger church. Or, you know, why can't we have, you know, this church, 300 people in this church and all of that sort of thing. You know, when you kind of think like that, that's not the kind of thinking we're, we ought to think like, how can Christ be most exalted in this assembly? How can Christ be most exalted in our community as we share him to others? And let him take care of the, the, the details and the growth and, and all of that. The goodwill crowd, however, you look at this in verse number, um, well, actually that, that phrase came from verse 15, some also from goodwill, but it then explains in verse 17 or 16, if your translation is swapped, uh, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now think of the totally different mindset of these people, totally different. They loved the apostle Paul. They had no malice in their hearts for him. They believed in his message. They believed in him personally. You know, they didn't think of him Boy, what an idiot. He could have avoided going to prison if he was just smarter. You know what I mean? And I know some people thought that way about this pandemic. Oh, that preacher got himself put in jail. 
How dumb. Oh yeah, he was the one that actually stood up for what's right, and the rest of the people saying how dumb are those that kind of shirked back and didn't do anything. Shameful to my way of thinking, but you know, maybe some thought that about the Apostle Paul. If he just wouldn't go to that temple and, and, and stay away from those Jewish people, he wouldn't have got into this mess in the first place. Um, he should have been more prudent, they would say. You know, then he wouldn't be you know, caught up in all this mess and be going to prison and jail all the time and so on and get himself beat, beat up. But no, these good people recognize that God was working through the situation. They know, now listen, they know that Paul's role is critical. And here's where we don't have time this morning, but I will say something about this maybe later tonight. When he says that I am here appointed for the defense of the gospel. Let's just imagine a similar situation to this only in our modern context. A well-known preacher is charged with what? Uh, bigotry, um, hate speech in the United States. And he's brought up on charges and it goes through the state courts, it goes to the federal courts and eventually winds its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And that preacher would be like the Apostle Paul. Now, let, think of the stakes. If he loses, a great persecution could break out against the church in the entirety of the United States of America. That preacher is set for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's not, it's not that he's super special. He just happens to be the guy that they picked on, tried to make an example of. Okay? And he's set for the defense of the gospel. See, this is not just mere apologetics where you know, you're going to your friend and you're saying, let me tell you about the reason for the hope that lies within me. Yes, you, that's, that's the defense of the gospel. That's the confirmation of the gospel. But this is the defense of the gospel nationally. Here's Paul before the highest court, and where his case goes is going to make or break the church in some sense. These people may be a little bit on pins and needles wondering, you know, if this case goes down, is our city going to suddenly close our church because they get this newfound wind of opposition to the church so they feel emboldened to be able to say, look at those bigots, we're going to close them down. That's what Paul means when he's set for the defense of the gospel. And that's why the good-willed people preaching Christ are bold and they're trying to be, keep the ministry going because they know that he's standing up there representing basically them. The legality in the Roman Empire of the Christian project, so to speak, rides on Paul's shoulders. He's taking the gospel to the Supreme Court. And what they decide will determine what these other preachers will have going forward, either freedom or persecution. He represents all preachers and all Christians before the Caesar. This case was a big deal. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. The bad teachers, though, still, as I indicated earlier, could not ruffle Paul's feathers. We'll look at verse 18. It says in my translation, what then? What does your translation have? What then? One of them has, what does it matter? What does it matter that they're thinking they're going to add affliction to my chains? 
he recognizes that a bigger thing is being accomplished, and in that he is happy. Remember, these are not ministers preaching false doctrine. They're preaching from bad motivations. And in the fact that they are preaching the gospel, even with bad motivations, he's happy that the gospel's going out. That's okay in some sense. Whether the people preach Christ for real or just outwardly for a pretense to, to accomplish something else, God uses that. Let me ask you this question. Can falsely motivated preachers stop the advancement of the gospel? Nothing can stop the advancement of the gospel, and the Apostle Paul is saying that. In other words, not even false motivations in gospel preachers can stop the advance of the gospel. Since Paul saw things like that, that way, he did not take it personally what they were doing to him. You know, it wasn't a new word, trigger. It wasn't a trigger for him that he, he was in prison and they were out there accruing followers to themselves. If he could know that Christ was being preached, his trigger was an entirely different realm. Now, when Paul was triggered was when the false gospels were preached. And he would go after that. And that wasn't, you know, I'm not using trigger in the kind of snowflake way that it's used today. I'm using in the, you know, kind of pushes buttons. When you preach a false gospel, that pushed Paul's buttons. He wasn't going to tolerate it. But this, at least, the gospel is being preached. You know, he did not approve of the poor inner desires of these bad preachers, but, you know, those weren't seen in the public so much, but he knew about them. And Paul was happy. Look at what he says. I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice that Christ was preached. I, I, I gave myself over to nothing else but to preach Christ, he told the Corinthians. So Paul is assuring his dear friends that although he's in prison, the mission of the gospel is moving ahead anyway. And listen, the gospel did not move ahead despite his imprisonment. I mean, we could say that it did, but it moved ahead because of his imprisonment. In other words, God had already used... It wasn't like Paul going to prison and God was like, oh, plan B, okay, I can, despite that, I can do this. No, it was plan A is Paul is going to prison so that some people in the, in the Praetorian Guard can be saved so that Caesar can hear the gospel firsthand from its greatest Gentile exponent, proponent, and that the ministry can flourish throughout the Roman Empire because of what I'm doing with the Apostle Paul. He must be shown how many things he's going to suffer for my sake, and he will carry my name before the Gentiles. And he was going to do that by being in prison. God used that, not as plan B, not as oops, not as accident, not as, oh, I can omnicompetently work around this. No, God omni, omnipotently worked in it and through it. And so today... You know, we think of the situations that we face. COVID, for example, cannot stop the progress of the gospel. You know, are you joking with me if you think it can? Give me a break. Even if churches have to close temporarily, government regulations did not stop the church from worshiping last year. They're not stopping us from worshiping this year. Interestingly, the modern-day the modern attacks on the church can, in fact, be an occasion for us to increase in boldness and to be more outgoing in our faith. 
We know what we have is precious and true. It is the only way that a person can be eternally saved and secure. What do we have to be shy about, my friends? What do we have to be shy about? Nothing. Now, in our land, the modern version of opposition that I've just alluded to is, is, is insignificant, really. It's tiny. In other parts of the world, the harshest of persecutions still cannot eliminate the Christian faith. It can do real damage, and it deserves blame for many souls being lost because they do not hear the gospel. But if God wants the gospel anywhere, he'll get it there, whether it's by a person, by means of a computer, invisible radio waves, print Bibles, whatever it is, the gospel will move. And so let's pray that, that God's word will run to its destination, 2 Thessalonians 3.1, and take serious stock of how you can be a conduit for the gospel. Now, don't leave it to your pastor. Don't leave it to your hired gun missionaries. You are a minister too. And my job in this message in part has been to convince you that you are capable with the gospel to share it to all those that you encounter as, a, as an Ephesians 4.12 minister, me preparing you to be ministers for God so that you can go out and do that and multiply the effects of the work. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, my friends. Even if it lands some of us in jail someday, God will use even that to advance the gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for this word that the apostle said that the things that happened to him have turned out for the advancement of the gospel. It wasn't an accident that you sent him there to prison, and it's not an accident that you've put some of us in difficult circumstances, some in the hospital right now, some in family circumstances where we find, think it's, it's very difficult. Lord, you can use us to be ministers of Christ in those circumstances, and we pray that you will. Thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, and your patience when we do not use the opportunities you give us. Forgive us, I pray, and help us to be faithful to you in Jesus' name. Amen.